Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Steve. Uh, hey, we've got part two of our Judges Chapter 19 commentary. Our uh, special guest, Deidre Brower, is uh, once again with us, and she's going to finish up um, her exposition of this passage. And uh, we have a wonderful chat together and um, some good times. Uh, you'll have to forgive the lateness of the second half. Um, hopefully you listened to the first half immediately when I posted it, and you've just been hanging on the ledge of anticipation ever since. Uh, I was traveling the last couple of weeks in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and then last weekend in Boise, Idaho, to run a half marathon. So um, you can blame the, the rain. You can blame the uh, steepness of my race last Saturday. You can blame whatever it is, but... Bottom line, here you go, second half. Um, hopefully you enjoy it. And then uh, next time we'll finish up the book of Judges, with chapter 20 and 21. And I think after that we'll have one more um, in our series on Judges with a little bit of exposition and, and kind of summing up uh, the entire book, kind of review where we've been and uh, maybe what, uh, what implications this important book has for us today. So with that, let's turn it over to Dieter. But what I, I did want to bring back attention to the Levite because it actually makes his character that much more um, heinous. I'm trying to think of the right word. Is that Levites were representatives of Yahweh and they were the spiritual leaders of the nation. And so the fact that, that this is a Levite... Um, makes it that much more um the word that comes to my mind is like egregious it's yeah that's it's a like good not one. only is this a guy and, right. and an israelite guy but he's actually exactly a priest, and he's supposed to be the one you know in joshua we see that levites carrying the ark you yes. know it's like they're the ones who are sort of yeah leading the, the charge i guess yeah they make they make atonement for the people they they're the ones who do the sacrifices um they lead worship they interpret the law um so yeah yeah and here uh and it's also significant too just to go back to how the narrator depicts the levite in this narrative he's he's everything contrary to what a levite should be yeah when that brings us to this, I'm going to read this out. This is verse 25. So they're talking about the men who have assembled at the doors. The men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine mm-hmm. and brought her out to them. And then proceeds from there. Right. But people have, have gone around and around about, well, who it says the man. Well, who was it who really did this? Was yeah. it was it the guy who had invited the Levite into his house? Is he the one who finally took this concubine and threw her out to right. these guys? Or was it the Levite himself who finally made the decision to to toss her out the door yeah. into the mob? Where, and we don't know. Yeah. Or do you have an idea? I mean, do you have, do you lean one way or the oh, other? Oh, totally. Or do, I would okay. say the Levite. You think it's the Levite? Yeah, and the majority of um, scholars I read said the Levite. Okay. And I think that's because the pronoun he in the Hebrew most closely follows Levite okay. rather than the host. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I would say it was the Levite who did that. See, I, I, I can understand that reasoning. I almost, I almost want it selfishly to be ambiguous because i think especially towards the end of this chapter yeah that there's an ambiguity there that i think is intentional mm. or seems like it could be intentional oh, that the right. narrator is actually wanting us to 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 be guessing about what's going on hmm. and i think that's another reason why i could see people staying away from this text a little bit is because there are these if the narrator is playing games with us and not even telling us what's going on because he wants us to be wondering about hmm. these things and how do I how do I make sense of it now I've got to make it make sense to other people too so I don't, I don't yeah. know I, I, I want it to be ambiguous maybe it's not but here in a minute the, the Septuagint seems to do something at the very end of the chapter that I I really think points back to 
the narrator is trying to be ambiguous and people have come along later and maybe tried to make it a little less so. Uh-huh. But I don't know. You know, it's... it's <laughs> yeah, I, we can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I want to hear your thoughts. So, so let's get to that. I mean, this is sort of the high, highlight, low light, let's say, right. of the passage where, you know, this, this woman is, is tossed out to the mob and then finishing up verse 25, it's my version, this is the NASB, mm-hmm. it says they raped her and abused her mm-hmm. all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. Right. So, we, I mean, that's sort of the bottom of this whole situation has just happened. Yep. And then she's sort of just left there. Oh, yeah. But she's she's still she's still alive. She's right. still there. And she, she crawls or whatever oh, she does yeah. back to the door. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's checking on her. No, no. one's No one's really... Oh, yeah. In any way trying to rescue this woman. Exactly. Even when she's left alone. Right. There's no one coming out the door. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things, actually, that are really powerful to me in this, you know, this part of the, the narrative. Um, first, I wanted to go um, back to um, when the men of Gibeah come around the house mm-hmm. and they demand that the host throw out the Levite. The narrator specifically calls them sons of Belial, right. and um, and that is a word associated with death, mm-hmm. and um, it's a word associated with death and destruction. So really, these are the rapists are men of death and destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman, the Bethlehemite woman, to me, um, because of how the Old Testament presents women and or and even the first woman eve Chava, her name is life mm-hmm. and so because a woman's uh, primary role was a wife and motherhood she a woman is symbolic of life and sustenance mm-hmm. and um and so really um to me these men of death and destruction are attacking life and are attacking uh, one who embodies life and wisdom and sustenance. Um, another wonderful, um, great insight, again, going back to Nicholas Ansel, uh, my favorite scholar on this chap on Judges 19, he actually sees parallels between pa- the Passover and the Bethlehemite woman. And so... Um, and, and we'll see more of that as we get into the next couple of verses. But the fact that the Levite is the one who makes sacrifices, he essentially sacrifices the woman to save himself. And oh, wow. um, so with the Passover, um, you know, you have the um, life is within the house. And... Um, the ritual is to put blood, the blood of a lamb, of a sacrificial lamb, on the doorposts, the doorway of the house, to keep death from entering the house. And so really you do have this um, setting of life within this house. And the Levite pushes her across the threshold of the doorway into the death outside Mm -hmm. the house. And so... um, and also, too, what we see in the next few um, verses, especially when he cuts her apart, it's all sacrificial words, all sacrificial terms that are being used. Um, so she's coming back and falls down at the door of the house. Um, so the doorway in this passage is symbolic. The narrator brings a lot of attention to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've never. I have not heard that yeah. interpretation that the the past the, right. the similarities with the Passover. Yeah, yeah. and it, her going back to the house, it really shows um, the desperation of this woman. That this is the only place she has to turn is the very place where she was cast out Absolutely. into a mob of rapists, and her her even hands being on the threshold is like her reaching out for life, reaching out her, it it really shows her desire to live. Um, but yeah, what's an incredibly heart wrenching about this narrative is that nobody comes, nobody comes to her. Um, 
and really the only person who is attentive to her is the narrator. Um, he's the one who brings her again to the forefront, who is drawing attention to what has happened to her. And the fact yeah. that he even sees her hands, the placement of her hands shows his incredible awareness of her condition and where she is. So he's the one who sees her. It's kind of reminded me, of, yeah, chapter 12 of, of um, Judges. I think it's chapter 12. It's Jephthah. Yeah. And yeah. his, or chapter, it's chapter 11, sorry. It's, it's Jephthah and his daughter, where right. he makes the vow saying, the first thing that comes out of my house, if I yeah. win this battle, I'm going to sacrifice it to God. And then it turns out it's his daughter. That's right. And she comes and dances, and he ends up. And yeah. the interesting thing, we talked about this a few weeks ago on the, on the commentary, was sort of like, here she, you know, it's very, in some ways, it's very similar to Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. Um, where oh, it's, yeah. Where it's different, though, is that, well, he didn't have to make this vow. He didn't have to make this promise. Like, he, he just makes it stupidly, and then he sees it's his daughter. He's obviously upset by it, but it, it never says that someone came to her rescue. Right. Like, it, it, basically, she dies because yeah. of this man's yeah. promise, which he didn't even have to make in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And it, what, you're, what you were just saying now about this woman in, in Judges 19, yeah. it sort of reminds me, well, here just a few chapters ago, we saw another woman who yeah. basically knew that she was doomed to die. She goes, she goes out for a time and wanders the wilderness, which... Who knows what that meant? Yeah. But then she comes back and her dad kills her. Like, where else is she going to go? Right. In other words. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe, I don't know, I haven't really thought about this till now, but I wonder if there's... Oh, yeah. It seems like the narrator, it's the same narrator, yeah. is trying to get a point across. Oh, yeah. Of, well, that, that just reminds me, too, just of how uh, women, the women of judges, because you see this deterioration of how women are treated. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Hess will uh, go back to, to this and say that how women are treated is symbolic of what's going on in the nation. And uh, so you start off, actually, you have an incredible parallels and contrast with the first woman of Judges, Aksa, and the Bethlehemite woman. They're both women from Judah. Um, they both married prominent men. Uh, you see them both on a donkey. They both make um, very bold moves. Uh, Aksa asks for um, land and water. And uh, the Bethlehemite woman leaves her husband. A very bold and countercultural move. Um, so you have Aksa, you have Deborah, you have all these strong women at the beginning of Judges. And then from there, uh, women lose their name. They lose their voice. They lose their, their power. Um, and that, that really just ties in again to the whole theme of judges. Um, yeah. That's, we, and we've kind of talked about that off and on that how, like what you just said is you see these women in their role sort of degrading uh-huh. as you get through. And at the same time, you're seeing the degradation of Israelite religion. You're seeing the degradation of society. You're right. seeing, you're seeing people who are obviously worshiping Baal and Ashtara. Yeah. And then the altar to Yahweh is sort of just incorporated into all these other right. altars that they happen to have around and yep. complete chaos. Exactly. And the state of women does seem to parallel that trend. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah. And, and that goes back to the, the narrator keeps saying, especially in the epilogue, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right or good in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and throughout judges, what we see is that everyone was doing what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, but they were doing the good in their own eyes. And, um, and that even testifies to defining what is good and who, who, yeah. And, uh, if we determine good outside of Yahweh, then what does that lead to? Hmm. Yeah. I think that, I mean, the societal piece of this yeah. cannot be like the, the interplay between religion and culture, religion, exactly. religion and society. Oh like yeah, what was going on in one sphere was sort yep. of paralleled in the other. Oh totally. And don't, I mean, we we separate, we completely separate it. Yeah, religion has nothing to do right. other than doing good stuff. It's like, yeah. well, I'm a Christian, therefore I go work at the homeless shelter on the weekend or yeah. whatever. But that's a, that's almost as far as we take it. We yeah. don't make these kinds of sweeping right. connections, do we? Between 
the state of our worship of God and the state of our society. Oh, right. I mean, and it seems like the narrator seems to be very concerned yeah. with that point. I don't know. And I think what makes even um, this, or even rape, in so devastating is that in our culture, we're so individualistic, so we don't really think communally. Right. But here... Uh, it's the exact opposite. Identity was community. Identity, there was no individual self. You you were part of a, a bigger picture. You were part of, of society. And, and mm. yeah. Yeah, so that, and we're going to see in the next couple of chapters how the reaction to right. this. Oh, yeah. So the way that this guy is going to, this Levite is going to get everyone's attention. He sees, well, first of all, he sees this, Woman who, just a few verses back, he was apparently chasing after yeah, and very right. very intent on getting this woman yeah. back. And now, she, as you said, you know, she's, she's sort of reaching for life here on the threshold of the door. And he comes right. out and he's like, come on, we're going. That's right. I mean, that's his, that's his reaction. That's yeah. his... Is there... And again, is, is this... I, I have to wonder, is this the narrator being intentionally obtuse with us and saying he's not giving us any any reaction on behalf of the levite like is that what are we supposed to take away from that is that right what is the narrator trying to tell us with that reaction yeah one thing that the narrator is doing is he's doing something to us Hmm. he's doing something to the reader so he's evoking a response from us and so um even just trying to picture an initial reaction to reading this for the first time, it's like, oh my gosh, you feel so much for this woman and and this desire to want to tend to her and to care for her. And, and what happens in us toward the Levite, it's like, Oh, disgust. Like, who is this guy? And so the re- the narrator is stirring things within the reader. Um, so that that's part of it. Um, again, Ansel would say that it's even a portrayal of a Levite desecrating a Passover sacrifice. So, uh, yeah. um, again, it seems like the narrator is portraying everything that a Levite should not be. It's just a complete opposite picture of who a Levite should have been in Israel, which is significant through the whole epilogue, which is chapter 17 to 21. You have, um, before this narrative, you have um, another narrative of a Levite. And so you really see the, um, the spiritual chaos and deterioration depicted through these Levites. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to read that. I mean, the next part, I want to read it straight out of my English translation because it plays into what I want to talk about next. So verse 28, he said to her, get up and let's go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her into 12 pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions in the, the, the literature that is, I, I, I don't even think you can compare saying it's more troubling than the rape or less troubling than the rape. It's just troubling right. in the same way that the rape was troubling, which is that we're not told what state she's in when they get home. We're, mm-hmm. not, we're not told if she's alive, if she died on the way there. I mean, right. we, know, we know nothing about her condition now. But we know that she's cut into 12 pieces. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, before I answer that, I just wanted to say real quickly, his response to her, get up, hmm. let's go. Um, you see a parallel of that when Amnon, who rapes Tamar in Second Samuel 13, hmm. says the exact right. same thing to That's her, right. get up and go. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to make reference to that. Um, well, the Hebrew actually gives... A little bit um, of a clue of whether she was dead or alive when he did dismember her. Um, the NIV completely passes over and it just says he took her home and he, he cut her up. 
Um, but the Hebrew actually has the word, he overpowers her, and then he dismembers her. Mm. And that word for overpower, chazak, um, is actually the word of when she was thrown out of the house, he overpowered her and threw her out. And so now we have him overpowering her and cutting her up. And it, it just makes me think what he overpowers someone who was already dead. Mm. I mean, that to me, in my mind, seems like she is still alive. But you do have the Septuagint that says, well, she was already dead. It's like they're trying to eliminate that possibility or the tension because it's not very straightforward. It's, it's subtle. Um, but, but that one word he overpowers and it, and I'll just say too, that word is really significant in all the rape narratives and in the rape laws, um, that word overpowering appears, um, overpowering a woman sexually. Yeah. Yeah. But here, uh, you're seeing it before he dismembers her. Yeah. This is, it's probably like the third time I've mentioned this, but it, it just has to occur to me again, which is what kind of disclaimers we would have to throw out if we were going to do a a Sunday sermon on this poor woman and everything that, if we're not going to gloss over this stuff and the possibility that in fact, that's exactly how the narrator wants us to take this. Like that's so right. I mean, my goodness, the, the things that are happening to this woman, we would not, we would not expose our kids to, we would not expose Even even women or men who had been through some degree of physical or sexual abuse, we would really have to prepare exactly to sit through this story. Oh my goodness! And yeah, but it's in every hotel nightstand. Oh right! I mean, it's not like we're hiding this thing. It's just nobody ever turns to judges. Exactly. (laughs) If someone one day picks up the Bible and this is what they flip to, yeah, it's right there. It's not censored. You're so right. Yeah. I don't know. It's just that, that weird tension to me that yeah. just because we don't talk about it, it's still right. Anybody, any five-year-old could find this story right. if, if they wanted to. Yeah. If they knew what they were looking for. That's right. So, yeah. okay. So maybe so maybe the, the text is is giving us a clue that, in fact, she was not dead. Right. Now, the Septuagint, mm-hmm. which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament, That's right. seems to go a different direction. Yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a couple... Addition, there are a couple of different text variants in the Greek that basically flat out say, but she was she was dead. Exactly. And, and they sort of take some of that tension mm-hmm. away. Or, and, and really, the disturbing, you know, the it lessens how disturbing even, mm. yeah, this is. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, I mean, it's... <clears throat> <clears throat> it's hard for me to decide for myself, like, well, is that the way it originally read and people took that out for some reason? Yeah. Or did they add that when they translated it at some point because they wanted to sort of make this a little bit more right. palatable to read Yeah. instead of really, I mean, really the way it's left is jarring. Oh, yeah. I mean, and yeah. I have to believe the narrator wanted it to be exactly. that yep. way. But, hmm. Yep. So yeah, <laughs> then we end up, you know, sort of the the final verse of this of this chapter. Um, all who saw it said, "Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from mm. the land of Egypt, which is the beginning of their history. Mm-hmm. Is really from the beginning of our history until now. Um, consider this, take counsel, and speak." Yeah. Um. Yeah, so much to say, actually, in those last two verses. Um, So even going back to um, when the Levite dismembers the concubine, um, that's without parallel in the Old Testament. But you do see um, some examples of um, probably the closest parallel is when Saul um, dismembers an ox in uh, 1 Samuel 11 as a summons for war. Right. And he, and he divides it into 12 pieces and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, you see a prophet in, um, I think it's in 2 Samuel. This is the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam. 
When the kingdom yeah. is being divided, yeah. um, there's a prophet who rips his robe apart into 12 pieces, right. symbolic of, again, the nation of Israel. And so now we have the woman's body being divided um, and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but again, this, this word used to cut her, uh, netach, uh, is often used of burnt offerings. Um, it's a sacrificial word. And there's a lot of irony in here as well, um, where really she's being divided in order to unite Israel. And, right, um, right. Because he wants to inflame them. He want the, right. the Levite wants to draw attention to this so that they come together against yeah, Benjamin, against the... That's right. Yeah. And um, so in a woman, I I love going back to images of the creation account um, and... Uh, uh, where God uh, gives the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And, and thinking about what's happened to this woman, she was known, just like Adam knew Eve, she was known in a very um, abusive way. Yes. Complete reversal of the creation account. And now um, her, her role as a woman uh, to be fruitful um, completely desecrated. So be fruitful and multiply. Well, instead of multiplying, she's being multiplied. And mm, so you just yeah. see such irony and contrast of, okay, this is a world that is completely a reversal of creation and what God intended. Absolutely. Yeah. So this narrator is being very, I don't know, I don't know if artistic is even the right word, but being very literary oh, and, yeah. and, and throughout the entire book, not just here, but yeah. this being the culmination. For me, it's the, sort of the culmination chapter, and the last two chapters are more sort of the consequences of this. But yeah, but you're right. I mean, we're tying back into Genesis. We're t- I mean, a lot. Oh, in yeah. A couple of different places we're tying back into Genesis. We're tying into the Exodus. You know, exactly. Not, not since we left Egypt. You know, exactly. All of these. All of these chords, but uh-huh. it, there's this artistry, but at the same time, there's part of that artistry lends me to think like he's leaving things out mm. because he wants us to think harder than we normally would in, oh, a, in yeah. a narrative kind of story where all the dots are connected for us. Right, And exactly. it seems like he's intentionally leaving out these like really key sort of, we have all these questions lingering and he refuses to to do anything with yeah, them. Yeah, right? and that has that has bothered people and uh, scholars, and um, especially feminist scholars, hmm. where they see the narrator as being complicit with the Levite, or they see him at, in a negative view because he doesn't, he's not straightforward. Uh, but there's another scholar, um, Jacqueline Lapsley, who really acknowledges actually what you're saying, that he leaves room for the reader to think. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yep. So what do you, so we, we talked about this idea towards the beginning of this and now kind of coming back around to, to this idea of the, the different voices that are. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? (laughs) You don't even have to ask. You you can just say it. Well, that, um, that last verse in 30 where they're saying nothing like this has happened since we left Egypt, you really hit on that when you said um, uh, it goes, they're referring back to the beginning of their history as a nation, mm-hmm. but it definitely recalls the Exodus, which is huge. And it also recalls the Passover because the Passover and the Exodus were hand in hand with them leaving Egypt. Right. Um, so uh, just another significant connection um, back to um, the Passover, the Passover sacrifice, God's salvation. It really recalls Yahweh's historical act of redemption and his salvation of um, sacrificing a lamb, um, him saving them literally from death. And then uh, leading them through the Exodus and that whole image of, of the sea and, it, and the people going through the sea. Because the sea in itself has such imagery of creation. And, um, and it's like God bringing them through the sea, through the depths, just as the Spirit of, of God hovered over the depths in Genesis 1-2. 
and out comes this new creation. So just such powerful imagery associated to that one phrase since the day we left Egypt would have evoked all of that, yeah. you know, in their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's significant to me that she is really juxtaposed with uh, Yahweh's historical act of redemption. She's remembered in light of his sal- salvation, his his redemption. Um, and then the um, the exhortation uh, to think about it. Uh, actually, the Hebrew. Well, there's one Hebrew manuscript that I love where it actually says, "Set set your heart upon her." Um, the what we have in in um, our BHS Hebrew Bible says, "Set yourself to her." Yeah. Uh, but there's one manuscript, "Set your heart." So there's that word "heart" again. Set your heart upon her counsel and speak. Right. So. Powerful words, even for today, of even how to come alongside of the Bethlehemite women out there today, uh, to set your heart upon them, and let's counsel wisely regarding them, and let's speak. I, I mean, even just to say speak is is huge, um, because it, again, so often unspoken. So we have this woman in chapter 19, and we don't have a name. She never talks. Right. So in that, in that sense, it's, it's sort of ironic that that's sort of the, the last exhortation of this chapter. Speak up. It's almost like speak up on her behalf or speak yeah. up. And, you know, isn't that the foundation of the law? Yeah. Of, you know, speaking up, giving the voice to the people, who the foreigner and to the, right. to the widow and the orphan and exactly. all of these things. How many times in Leviticus and Deuteronomy we have those terms? Yeah. Right? And here we have, you know, speak up. Well, speak up for what? Yeah. You know, are we speak, we're speaking up for this woman who did not speak the entire right. chapter. But now we've talked about, or I think I've talked about it because I've been on this weird yeah. kick of, we're not talking about it. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about the passage. Exactly, the same passage that tells us to speak up for this one. We're not reading. Yeah, and we yeah. don't know. We don't know her story in church. So, yeah, are we missing out on a tool that God gave us mm. to advocate for women, to advocate for men who have been through traumatic abuse, exactly. who have been through all these things? And one of the tools that we have is just lying there. Oh, right. Between Exodus and yeah. Psalms or whatever we go to yeah. you know, in between here. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. That when you, that just as you were speaking, it was kind of like, wait a minute. Yeah. Here, here's this command that, you know, is it meant for us? Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. That's right. But we're not even reading that part yeah. that tells us to yes. do this. I don't know. Exactly. Yep. So, so you know, we and you kind of hit on this already, but these voices, we have the, the voice of her, mm-hmm. we have the voice of the of the narrator. So what are they, I mean, what are they, what are they saying, I guess? What, what are they saying to church, churches today? What are they saying to people who follow Christ today? What is their, what comes beyond judges into our world? Mm. That's that's kind of what I'm curious and yeah, and that's the hearing your thoughts on. <laughs> yeah, that's such an important question. Um, going back to the voices, um, some things that um, are in my mind is the word outrage. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the in this narrative, in the judges' narrative, we hear that word in the voice of the host. In Gibeah, he tells these um, sons of Belial, these sons of death and destruction. He says, um, "Do not commit this outrage." And he is saying that in the context of they're wanting to know the Levite, and that's when he he says it. Um, Don't do this outrage. You hear Tamar say that to Amnon's face. Don't right, rape me. That's right. I yeah. forgot about that. She says, don't rape me. Don't do this outrage. And then with uh, Dinah in Genesis 34, 
uh, her brothers, the sons of Jacob, say Shechem committed an outrage. An outrage. Yeah. Right. So you definitely hear um, the voices within uh, the narrative. And it's a deliberate word that the narrator uses. Uh, he's calling rape an outrage. It's an abomination. It's it's a transgression. It's a violation against God, against uh the woman and against the whole community. It just has like huge ramifications. Um, so that, yeah, that's a significant word um, that's used. Uh, the way that they even um, portray what is rape, um, that it's uh, incredibly violent and destructive um, and just has so many consequences to the the pain and suffering of the woman. Uh, so they really acknowledge the devastation of the woman, and um, and the de- the devastation of the community around her. And so they rightly name and call things as they are. They mm. they call rape um, as force, as sexual force. Um, they call it evil. Um, so words that the biblical writers use, and even Tamar, again, what's so powerful of, about Tamar is that the narrator actually speaks through her voice. Hmm. So she's calling what Amnon wants to do to her rape. She's calling it evil. Um, as you uh, as we get into like Judges 20, um, a word that's used is madness. And so all these... Um, all these words and expressions that the writers use really communicate how they saw rape. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and even in the legal text, Deuteronomy 22, uh, 25 through 29, that's where we see the rape laws. And rape is equivalent to murder. It, it, it mm. specifically says it's just as if you've murdered the soul of a man when you rape a woman. And, uh, and the punishment was death. And um, wow. this is specifically for the rape of an of a betrothed woman, so a woman who is either engaged or married. To rape her was equivalent to murder, and the rapist was put to death. And you actually hmm. see that played out in Judges, where Israel tries to carry out the law, and they they try to put to death initially the men of Gibeah who rape the Bethlehemite woman. Right. Well, and and that leads me to think about. You say it's you know a betrothed woman or or a woman who's married, but at what age back then? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like that, you're like barely in adolescence, and you're married off. It's it's oh right. You know, it's such an early age compared yeah. compared to our modern. Yeah, that's so. Right. I mean, and I don't know. In in a way, I almost interpret that as any woman who's not a kid. Oh, I mean, yeah. in a way, because just because of that age disparity of yeah. how early women were engaged or, or married was yeah, that's true, incredibly young. Yeah. So yeah, that, huh, I would have to think more about that. That's yeah. Well, and then I I think too about lifespan. What was their lifespan? Yeah, certainly nothing close to what we yeah. what we have now. But yeah. So so these laws, you know, th- these laws. In Deuteronomy, that are meant for such a specific transgression, right? And of course, we have law. I mean, we have our own laws that that deal with this. But I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking about like because we still have so much silence mm. about this issue, about sexual abuse, about you know physical abuse, right? And here in the passage, I love that the, that final command: speak up. Yeah, it seems like, there, and I haven't had much time to process this yet. I'm just kind of thinking out loud now, but it seems like there's something more there for us than just something that happened back then. It right. seems like that that command somehow for me is carrying over to yeah. there's something that maybe we're not doing or doing enough. Yeah, that we. The, the narrator, you know, we, we talk about this narrator constructing this story for us, 
trying to get us to a particular state of mind. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, oh, I wonder how much more we can learn from this narrator than, oh, than we yeah. have. That's just what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So give us, I mean, tidy this all. Oh, because, no. because this is so messy and I'm just sitting here and I'm, I'm depressed now. Oh. So, But I'm, I'm depressed because the word of God, I think, has led us to that saying, look, bad, these bad things happened then, they happen now. Mm. And mm -hmm. this text is trying to get us to do something about that. So right. we'll, tell us, tell us what, I mean, what do we do now? What do we do with this? What's our responsibility or, or I don't even know. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I'm still working that out myself. Um, some thoughts um, that I have is that this acknowledges suffering. It acknowledges atrocity. Um, and so often we, we turn away from it mm. or we, we don't want to acknowledge it. Um, but this is very potent. Like it's very courageous because it stares the worst atrocity in the face. And Israel very well could have buried this mm -hmm. at some point over the past 2000 years could have scrapped this whole narrative, but they didn't. And that in itself is huge. Um, and so I think speaking even from the perspective of a sexual abuse survivor in, in my own experience is in my journey of healing, wanting just so desperate somebody acknowledge what happened. Somebody please acknowledge. Somebody please see what happened that is so huge in the healing process someone believe me um hear me uh let me have a voice all of those are just huge in the healing journey um remember uh that to me is significant she's not forgotten and i think so often Anybody who suffers um, is, and suffers from abuse feel forgotten, feel invisible. Um, and I think this narrative speaks, yeah, speaks to that. They see her. They remember her. Uh, it's significant to me, too, that they remember her in the context of the Passover and of the Exodus. And so they're remembering her in a context of redemption. And and she's also remembered um, in the context of Ruth, um, mm -hmm. who was also a woman during the period of the judges, definitely a powerful um, testimony of redemption. And also Hannah uh, in 1 Samuel, um, who's a barren woman. And how God uh, acts redemptively in her life. And a lot of themes of reversals, both in Ruth's life and Hannah's life. Yeah. Uh, where you have these themes of desolation and barrenness and death. And then you have life. Um, and the tribe of Judah also being significant. You have the Bethlehemite woman from the tribe of Judah. You have Ruth from the tribe of Judah, this messianic line from the tribe of Judah. Um, definitely powerful significance of even Bethlehem. Um, and then I think about Tamar as well. Uh, what has bothered me about that narrative with Tamar is that the last thing that is said about her is that she was a desolate woman. That's right. And yeah. so that word desolate is normally used to speak about the land of Israel when when it's in exile. And you, and it, it brings up imagery of desert and barrenness and wilderness. And it even has um, a parallel in, in one passage in Isaiah with tohu vavohu, this void, void and empty. That's the phrase in Genesis 1-2. The, the earth was formless and empty. Definitely this 
feeling of nothingness and survivors of sexual abuse tend to feel all of those things. Mm. Um, and so in the wider context of the old Testament and the redemption that God does bring about, um, I'm thinking of a passage in Ezekiel where it says God will will make your desolation like the Garden of Eden, that he will reconcile back to his intended purpose. Yeah. Um, and Tamar uh, is re- also remembered in, in, within a context of redemption. She is uh, mentioned, I can't remember if it's First or Second Chronicles chapter 4, somewhere at the beginning it gives the genealogy of the king's or of David's sons, um, and then it goes directly into the line of the kings of Judah. So there's a handful of sons mentioned of David. Amnon isn't mentioned, uh, completely wiped out. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Tamar is the very last of David's children who is mentioned she's the only daughter mentioned Mm. and she's mentioned after all of these sons of david and directly after her name comes solomon and the kings of judah and so just a powerful placement of where she's remembered uh, really remembered in the context of the kings of judah yeah and that would have been very everyone would have understood the implications of that order like yeah that would have been very obvious yeah that's right Hmm. yep So, yeah, those well, are <laughs> just some us, thoughts. Of, gave us maybe one or two things to think about. <laughs> and I would say, too, um, the narrator always sides with the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. It, I mean, the Levite's definitely never the hero of this Right. Oh, story. no. I mean, he is right. scum. Exactly. I mean, really. Yeah, that's is, it. Yeah. And, uh, and you also see that really strongly with Tamar. Tamar actually speaks wisdom. She embodies wisdom in the flesh. And she speaks the law of Israel to Amnon. And so um, just there are just such powerful imagery of women in the Old Testament. Um, and, and for Tamar to speak the way she does, she's just such a strong woman mm-hmm. with a strong voice speaking on behalf of the nation of Israel. Um, and, it, and you also see same um, consequences coming out after Amnon rapes her. You have civil war. Uh, Absalom, actually, you have war within David's family because Absalom wages war against David and you have the division of a nation. So incredible parallels with her story and with the story of the Bethlehemite woman. Yeah. So for some, a topic that's as charged, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, it's as charged as, as rape or sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And yet the, all of these examples that you just gave where not only are these, these historical events mentioned and prominently mentioned, but then it ties into the theology and it ties into yeah. sort of how history is actually judged. And like the Chronicles, it's like, well, we're actually going to present history based upon our judgment of these people. Yeah. And, and honor this woman who otherwise, you know, if she had just been anonymous through history, we would never know who she was. Yeah. And this horrible thing happens to her. But now, however many hundreds and hundreds of years later, we still know this woman's name. Yeah. And we see her descendants playing into this much, much more overarching story. Right. So, again, I keep coming back to this idea that if scripture is this concerned with this topic and the implications and and the consequences Mm -hmm. of what happens Mm -hmm. when we obey god's law concerning this or we don't yeah that it like you said it plays into all these other oh yeah parts of life and society and I, I, even even with i mean i i think it's taught I, I don't know if it's fair to say that that sexual abuse is talked about in a way today that maybe it wasn't 20 years ago or 30 years ago i mean i don't know if that's true i'm i'm sort of assuming that 
we've progressed in some ways. Oh, we totally have. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't around (laughs) to know 30 years ago, but I'm assuming that's the case. Yeah, and I I really have to come back to... to remembering that and to saying that because definitely you see a turn in the 1970s with the feminist movement mm-hmm. uh, because we didn't even have rape crisis centers until the 70s. Yeah, um, yeah, which is just yeah, it sort of I don't know blows your mind. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it really does. Like it's and and even scholarship that has come the scholarship over the past 40 years biblical scholarship is really phenomenal in how they're addressing uh, rape in the Old Testament. Mm. I I mean, I'm just, everything I'm speaking is from scholars I've read. And and they've just have done incredible work on bringing light to these passages and um, really mining the riches out of them. Yeah. Yeah. This is excellent. I have kept you... A long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we've been talking about really good stuff. So I want to thank you very much for thank you. your input on this. And this is some things that you said that I have never heard that I want to go back home and probably chew on for another <laughs> another several hours. But um, but you have it. I think you, you know, I, I didn't want this, this, this chapter especially, I didn't want it to just be me talking. Yeah. Into a microphone because I don't carry an authority on this topic the way that I know other people do. So yeah. um, the research that you've put into it and that you have personally wrestled through yeah. is something that I could never replicate. So, well, thank, so thank you. you for lending us your expertise on this for for a brief time. And thank you. Yeah, it's been great. So yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm Thanks. really honored. Hey, we're honored to have you. So. <laughs> Thanks. Your disinterest draws me in I'll soldier on till you begin To want me back I lay awake, eyes wide Euphoria needles are inside Thank you.